Hello, welcome to episode three of The Bench Press. I am Jess Coleman, and I am here with Bobby Denault. Bobby, welcome back to the north. It's not as nice up yeah. here. It's actually pouring rain this morning. First thing Bobby texted me this morning was, why is it not Florida weather? <laughs> Look, the state doesn't have that much going for it, but weather-wise, it can't be beat. I can't argue with that, but let's get to it. We got a lot happening today. So let's start with our warm-up. Topic one, big news in the media world. Tucker Carlson is no longer a host on Fox News. The end of a fascist era. But is it? Well, yeah, you're probably right. It's, <laughs> it's not over. Um, there's nothing quite like recording about half of a podcast on the implications of the Fox Dominion settlement and then having 36 hours later. Probably the biggest cable news anchor in recent memory, lose his job, almost certainly, at least in part, as a result of the Dominion suit. Yeah, and I mean, it seems like we learned about this around the same time that he did, which is interesting. I think everyone's trying to figure out the why here. You mentioned the Dominion suit. There's a lot of articles and sources talking about things that could have happened here. I mean, this guy's got a lot of baggage. All those texts that came out about you know him shitting on the leadership of Fox... <laughs> shitting on Donald Trump. He's got lawsuits against him from former producers alleging hostile workplace. Yeah. At some point, Fox's leadership is probably thinking, just cut him loose. He's costing us a lot in legal fees. He's costing us a lot in credibility. He's costing us a lot in respect amongst our own board. You know, Fox has shareholders and a board, and they have a vested interest in making sure the management actually has control of the company. And if its biggest anchor is sending, you know, vulgar texts and he's critical of leadership, and I read somewhere that there was one particular message that was sent about someone in leadership that they were unwilling to relay to the New York Times reporters who were doing the story, but suggestive that it was very derogatory and inflammatory. It's just those kinds of things that you can't unsee them and they know leadership had seen them. And so if you don't do anything about this person, then who are you going to do anything about? Are you really in control of this company or is it the anchors who are running the show and the ones who are sending the emails of, you know, don't let people telling the truth on the air because it's going to cost the company in terms of share price. I mean, that's about as dumb as it gets from a liability standpoint to put that in writing. And Tucker did. Yes, he did few times. Yeah. And I, th I think it, it goes without saying, but we'll just go ahead and say it. We don't know the one why, and you're probably right that it was a bunch of things that you've mentioned, just a bunch of baggage. But what it doesn't appear to be is the years of conspiracy theories, the lies, the election denial, the bigotry. Those things didn't get him fired. And again, like we spoke about last week, it's, it's fun to watch Tucker Carlson and Fox News squirm. It's fun to watch them sort of crash. But this is not some sort of major development in right-wing media. This is not some watershed moment for Fox. This is just some turnover. It remains to be seen. Like, we really don't know. Rupert Murdoch is 96 years old. He does have a son, Lachlan, who I think is actually the current CEO. And I think from what I'm reading, it seems like they were in unison on getting rid of Tucker. But it's possible Lachlan has a different idea for Fox. I, I don't know. None of us know. I hope his replacement won't be as bad, but we have no reason to expect that it won't be somebody equally as inflammatory and dangerous. 
I remember years back when like Glenn Beck mm. and Bill O'Reilly left. There right. was a similar sentiment out there that, okay, maybe this is a little bit of a change. Maybe this is a, a reset. And then we ended up with Tucker Carlson. I had totally forgotten the Bill O'Reilly collapse, yeah. which was objectively hilarious. Mm-hmm. Everybody's grandparents watched Bill O'Reilly. And then there were all these recordings of him like harassing young female Fox producers about taking showers together. It was disgusting. Yeah. But like so wild that this guy who made a whole career out of being upright, you know, mm-hmm. traditional Christian granddad, like, give me a break. And surprise, oh God, he's actually right. just a creep. Right, just another creep. So, yeah, it. this has happened before. I put my money on whoever comes in and replaces him will be worse. And by the way, <laughs> the, the one positive is Bill O'Reilly's career completely imploded. He went to Newsmax yeah. for like six months, and then he just, he, I don't know, he's doing like a book tour about another fictional history yeah, book about JFK's murder or something like that. I don't know. He's just a weird guy now. Yeah, I think that for Tucker Carlson, the person, he's probably going to have some like website, some like podcast. A lot of people think he's going to run for president. A lot. And I, that video announcement wasn't wasn't somebody who isn't running, yeah, well, I will say. I welcome that. He's pretty weird, though. I'm not sure. Like, he has the charisma of an anchor. People who have careers in, like, television, they, they never do well. well like, Republican <laughs> politics. Like, that's just not a thing. Man. Different television. Yeah. Like, no, but really, no, it, I is, mean, it is very different. You have to give Trump, like, he could be funny. Carlson's not funny. His laugh is weird. He, he looks like he is kissing up to people when he's getting along with them. It's just strange. There's nothing like independently interesting about Tucker Carlson. Everything <laughs> interesting about him was just about the media he presented on the show. Excited to see where he ends up. And by excited, I mean I really don't care. Probably Palm <laughs> Beach. Yeah, that's a good that's a good bet. <laughs> they all go to Florida in the end. Let's move on to our second warm-up topic. District Attorney Fanny Willis, who serves Fulton County, Georgia, one of the targets of Donald Trump's claims of election fraud in the 2020 election, sent a letter this week to local law enforcement across Georgia indicating that her office is going to determine whether to charge certain individuals related to that scheme between July 11th and September 1st of this summer. And a lot of onlookers really saw this as a strong suggestion that she is planning to indict the former president. The reason being that the letter warned law enforcement of potential unrest, asked for them to prepare, didn't give any other indications, but just hard to really comprehend what type of unrest she would be predicting if not for the indictment of Donald Trump. What do you think, Jess? Yeah, the letter was pretty intense. You know, it was like high alert. You're not putting your local law enforcement on high alert for Rudy Giuliani. It's really only Trump. He's the cult leader. He's the one that his supporters will rally behind, have in the past. It was surprising. Like I, I mean, It was very surprising. Not unexpected, but I thought it was interesting that she did it in April. Maybe their preparation, she wanted to give them ample time. I don't know. But it's quite early to be doing that for a potential July or later announcement. You know, I think there's a lot going on with the 2020 stuff on the law enforcement front. 
right now, and it's being reported on in the press. Um, the New York Times reported yesterday that the special counsel, Jack Smith, is really deep into probing potential wire fraud by the Trump campaign and raising a ton of revenue from claims that the election was stolen uh, and whether or not the people who transmitted those uh, fundraising emails or organized that fundraising have any liability under criminal wire fraud statutes. This was a referral that the January 6th committee made. It appeared that the Justice Department was already looking into that. I'm not sure they really invented it or came up with this theory in the committee. But a lot of people are buzzing that the wire fraud prosecutions could be predicate acts under Georgia's RICO statute. The reality is they would also be predicate acts under a federal RICO statute. But I'm not sure Jack Smith actually brings wire fraud charges based on email fundraising. It seems really hard to me. What do you think? It seems hard. But I don't know. I mean, again, I don't like trying to read the tea leaves on stuff like that specific because there's so much evidence that he's probably gathering that we just we just don't know about i mean wire fraud is is weird you know i do know (laughs) i think maybe too people forget that there's lots of crimes at play here there's there's a potential obstruction there's potential campaign finance that they could look at. We're watching or just watched the end of the Proud Boys trial unfold for seditious conspiracy. Another item which has been in the press, but perhaps not enough, a very long trial uh, in the federal courts for the Proud Boys seditious conspiracy case. Yeah. Um, a really interesting write-up by one of the attendees it covered maybe where the government's case hits a few snags. The jury's deliberating. They've been deliberating for three days not a foregone conclusion that all the Proud Boys are going to be convicted of seditious conspiracy. The government has basically pitched that they don't need to have had a plan, um, which is true of conspiracy law generally, but seditious conspiracy has been hard for the government to prove in other cases, and, and some onlookers think that maybe they fell a little short of having a smoking gun of a plan to occupy the Capitol on January 6th. Yeah, Um, and this is where it gets hard because... At this point, like the facts are, it's all in the public sphere. We all know it. But the way these things fit into crimes, it starts to really depend on specific pieces of evidence, things that we just don't either don't know or just like can't organize in our heads right now. The way this plays out in terms of what charges come, when they come, it's going to be hard to predict and we don't know when it's going to come. But what we do know is that there are a lot of things happening right now all at once. And this guy's going to be facing possibly like four criminal charges. It's crazy. Across the country. It is crazy. And for any defendant to face charges in multiple jurisdictions at once is an immense challenge. It's expensive. It's very hard to win. But to face charges on unrelated conduct. You can't use the same legal teams. You can't use the same arguments. You can't recycle your briefs from one case and use them in another case. They're not related. And this guy's just exposed all over the place. And none of them the same as the classified documents issue. I know he's famous for not paying legal bills, but geez, any one of these could have cost him 10 million to 20 million in fees Mm -hmm. and three of them at once. We don't know where this is going to end, if it will end in acquittals, convictions, even indictments. But the expansiveness of this guy's criminal behavior is just astonishing. Like you said, these are completely separate things. These are not rogue prosecutors all across the country just like trying to get him on the same thing. This is very independent acts over many different years, very different crimes. 
whatever the way it ends in terms of the law, this guy is is just a habitual criminal. Yeah. Like it is Prolific. just, and that's that needs to be like the message. That needs to be how we tag this guy going forward. Totally, he's a criminal. Okay, well, coming up, we are going to do a heavy lift on the separation of powers issue that is boiling over between the Supreme Court and Congress. This is going to be a good one. We'll be right back. Welcome back. For today's heavy lift, we're going to get into a letter from the chief, Justice John Roberts, to the United States Senate. So to set this up, there have been some pretty large scandals at the Supreme Court involving Justice Clarence Thomas, Justice Gorsuch now. Following the public revelations of these multiple scandals, there have been renewed calls to impose a code of conduct on the Supreme Court justices. For those who don't know, there is an ethical code of conduct that is binding on lower federal court judges, but there is no such ethical code for Supreme Court justices. So in response to these calls, Dick Durbin, who is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, sent a letter to Justice Roberts requesting that he come and testify before the committee about what code the justices are following. Justice Roberts, a few days later, responds with a letter. And in the letter, it's about a page and a half long, he essentially says, no, I don't think I have to. Um, He lists off a, a few other times that justices have come and testified before the Senate. And he said, I just don't really think I need to because of separation of powers, judicial independence. And he finishes off, I attach a statement of ethics, principles, and practices to which all current members of the Supreme Court subscribe. See attached. That was essentially his response to the litany of corruption issues that have come up in the last few weeks. $500,000 vacations, non-disclosure of property purchases, potential conflict of interest violations, and the answer was, I've clipped our ethics rules to the back of this letter. Take a look, and I won't be talking to you. And we should note this new statement of ethics doesn't really say anything. It basically says we don't have any laws restricting us, but we consult a bunch of things. We consult the ethical code for lower court justices. We consult regulations. But that's about it. We just police ourselves. A lot of reporting around his tenure has been that he's quite careful. He has been reportedly a justice who's trying to build consensus between the different wings of the court. He was did not join the Dobbs decision. He could critique his own perspective on abortion rights, but he was not in favor of just overruling existing precedent that way. And yet, to me, this was such a grave error of judgment to be so flippant about potential corruption at your institution. He may be right on certain arguments about whether Congress really has the authority to subpoena a chief justice or ask for testimony. But that letter, that did not cut it in terms of a a thoughtful response to what has come up over the last few weeks, months, two years, and what the public wants answers on, which is, are these justices getting paid by the people who appear before their court and we're just all being told, we'll take care of it ourselves and it's none of your business? Is that really the answer? I don't know about you, but if I get a request to come testify from the chair of the United States Senate Judiciary Committee, 
Like, I'm taking that pretty seriously. The disrespect is what's so shocking here. And I think if there's ever just a perfect illustration of how unhinged and unaccountable this court has become, this is it. And we're going to be fair here because that's what we endeavor to do on Bench Press. There are fair assertions they could be making about why they don't feel Congress has the authority to demand they come speak or even oversee some of these issues. Just from a political perspective, there have been serious issues at the court before. Justice Abe Fortas resigned, I think this was the 60s or 70s, due to a very similar situation as the one Clarence Thomas is facing now. He was getting a salary, he was getting paid Mm -hmm. by a very wealthy patron uh, who had business before the court and it wasn't disclosed, and he resigned. The chief justice in that instance, like, wasn't asked to go testify before Congress. And so in that sense, Roberts maybe is kind of right. There have been issues before at the court, and it's not been the response of Congress or the court to organize testimony by the chief justice on those issues, because this is a separate but equal branch of government. And that brings us, I guess, into our major topic today that we want to discuss, which is separation of powers. So the question here is, does Congress have the power to subpoena the justices? Does Congress have the power to even constrain the justices with an ethical code of conduct at all? So there's three main articles of the Constitution. Article 1 makes the Congress. Article 2 makes the executive branch. Article 3 makes the judiciary. And Article 3 is the shortest. And the courts and Congress have both filled a lot into the void that exists in Article 3 and created a very powerful federal judicial system out of what could have alternatively been interpreted as a pretty narrow judicial part of the federal government based on the text of Article 3. And so with that, Jess, take us through the nerdy language that is at issue in the separation of powers here. Article 3, Section 1 of the United States Constitution, quote, The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. Very simply, the Constitution mandates the creation of the United States Supreme Court. It doesn't mandate the creation of any lower federal courts. That is up to Congress to decide how many there are, where they are, if there are any at all. The argument that perhaps follows from this is that because Congress has no authority to create the Supreme Court, but has the authority to create lower federal courts, their oversight authority over the lower federal courts is necessarily greater than their oversight authority of the Supreme Court. I don't know if that necessarily follows, but the argument that Roberts has made is that Congress can't create a binding ethical code of conduct on the justices because they don't have the authority to create or regulate the court really at all. What do you think of this? There's a lot of scholarship here that would agree with the sort of perspective you just made. The the text of Article 3 says Congress may ordain and establish these lower courts. But it, it says that judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. So the Constitution does the work there and then says Congress can do the work elsewhere. When we're talking about what the hell is going on with the Supreme Court? 
And why is it always that these bad stories are coming out, but nothing seems to be getting done? It's because there's this very interesting dynamic at play where the Supreme Court derives its power from the Constitution. And so from that, they've been able to enjoy a certain level of insulation from oversight. But we should note there, the reason this theory, frankly, confuses me is because there are a lot of things that Congress does and can do with respect to the court that no one would argue they can't. They can change the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Everyone agrees with that. And there's no express provision of Article 3 that gives Congress that power. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in the Supreme Court. That's understood to mean that they're the highest court, right? They have the last say. It doesn't necessarily follow from that that the manner in which they utilize and express that power can't be regulated. So the building that they're in or like their salary and all kinds of things that Congress can regulate about them, why can't they regulate how they behave, the sorts of things they can do outside of their job? Right. Suddenly this is some big imposition on the judicial power of the United States. Doesn't really make sense. The important thing to note is Congress passes laws. Congress has the power to pass criminal statutes and civil statutes. And the Supreme Court justices, like everybody else, are citizens of the United States who have to follow the law. And so to me, it logically follows that because Congress has a vested interest in making sure that the laws it passes are abided by by all citizens, including judges, including justices, it doesn't really matter that the Supreme Court is created this way because the laws apply to everybody. There's some interplay, of course. Congress could not pass laws that would give it insight into the operation of the court, probably. That does seem like it would be a violation of separation of powers. Congress can't pass laws that overrule opinions. But Congress can absolutely make sure bribery is not going on. That's not, you know, within the original judicial power. They're not untouchable from those rules. There's a tendency in the modern era to get away from common sense in our judiciary in favor of scholarship and really nerdy reading of historical texts. And look, it's just common sense. You can't commit bribery if you're a justice. You're subject to the law like everybody else. If you got a DUI on the street, you'd get arrested. If you shot somebody, you'd get arrested. The flip of that, though, is there's been a lot of cases about uh, testimony in the last few years about Congress's authority to subpoena cases. We saw the Mazars case. The congressional committees had subpoenaed President Trump's financial institutions for, for their records, and he wanted to block that. And there was a legal question of what is the test for Congress's authority to subpoena an entity? I think there's actually a fair argument to make that Congress is not a court of law. Hearings are important, and getting information and evidence in order to make legislation, also very important. I'm not really sure, though, that the authority to issue a subpoena to the Chief Justice to come testify on anything, like any issue that Congress has a question about at the Supreme Court, that does kind of seem like it borders into Congress acting like it's law enforcement. The better move would be for Congress to focus on this bill, this King Murkowski bill that requires SCOTUS to create its own code of conduct and ask the chief justice to come in and opine on that 
requirement, but not to send a broad missive asking him to come testify about corruption at the court. That does start to get into a question of like, is this really them acting as law enforcement, which they don't have the authority to do. Congress's subpoena power and their power to run hearings is very, very broad, but they have to have a valid legislative purpose for what they're doing. So if they can't constitutionally bind the justices with an ethical code of conduct, therefore sending a subpoena to the chief justice to discuss possible legislation on an ethical code of conduct for the Supreme Court is invalid because it's not a valid legislative purpose. You brought up the King-Murkowski bill, and there's an interesting wrinkle in there that you mentioned, which is that it doesn't create an ethical code of conduct, the bill. Right. What it does is it says the Supreme Court needs to create its own ethical code of conduct. Which is basically a a clever way of respecting the exact argument they're going to make, that you don't have any real oversight here. The Constitution created our branch of government, and we have an independent judicial power. I don't know if it's a perfect workaround, but it would be hard to imagine the court justifying striking down as unlawful a law simply asking them to create a code of conduct for themselves. It's pretty extreme. Um, and, yeah. and the other part of this, though, that you just alluded to, this test to justify the subpoena, who's going to decide that? It's going to go all the way to this court. So imagine this, okay, Congress subpoenas Chief Justice Roberts and follows this test, which, by the way, was written by Chief Justice Roberts and says, you know, here's our legislative purpose. We have uh, authority to make sure all laws are followed and the court, while it has a judicial power, it doesn't have, you know, unilateral power to oversee everything about itself. And, and we'd like Chief Justice Roberts to come and testify to us so we can obtain information related to this legislative purpose of passing this law. Well, the lower courts are going to be like, I have <laughs> no idea, right? I mean, maybe they Please get it. don't a, make me. Yeah, right. Every <laughs> judge is going to hate to write any opinions here because they know that it's going to the Supreme Court. Imagine this six to three court handling a case about whether Congress really has the constitutional authority to even oversee the judiciary. I mean, that's that's a scary case. It sets up a legitimate constitutional crisis. There's so many horrible things the Supreme Court has done, but they're just bad opinions. This is one where if Congress has to go to the judiciary in order to enforce their oversight of the judiciary, right? now we have two branches that actually can't work out the problem. They're not co-equal. I mean, yeah. if one can tell the other, F off. Right. And particularly if the courts can tell Congress to F off, like you mentioned the three articles, go and just take a look at the Constitution. Right. Article one sets out Congress really long. Article two, the presidency, a little bit shorter. Gets article three, it's like really, really short. Because everyone understood, like, these unelected people in the judiciary, they're not supposed to have this much power. So for the president and Congress, like, fighting, okay. But, like, when you get to Congress, the most powerful branch, the people's elected representatives, fighting the judiciary, unelected judges who, like, are only supposed to have this very limited power to, like, resolve disputes between parties, that's serious. I think that this is hitting a very predictable breaking point. This court for the last 30 years has been more about scholarship than leadership. And you can make lots of salient, intelligent points about why scholarship is more important to practicing law. But at the end of the day, people look to the government for leadership. 
And they look to Congress to lead in representing their will, to pass laws, to address issues. They look to the president to lead the country abroad, to execute the laws and sort of embody the spirit of the country. And they look to the courts for leadership on justice and fairness and vindication of their rights. You can disagree about whether all that's encompassed by Article 3 or not. But that's just a fact. People look to courts for justice. And for the last 30 years, conservatives have intentionally driven the court toward controversy and a total rethinking of American constitutional rights based on scholarship, not leadership, totally ignoring pragmatism and practical realities for individuals across the country. And I think it's that this plan is finally coming to fruition and that it came to fruition through political tactics that were so base, blocking Garland from getting even hearing, rushing Amy Coney Barrett in 38 days after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death as an election is happening across the country. And now they're implementing, you know, overrules of very popular precedents. Americans are never going to get behind that kind of judgment. And the second that you start seeing corruption of this magnitude at the court, it's like, of course the wheels are coming off the bus. It's so hard to trust anything that they're doing because you don't feel that they're actually leading in the right direction. Amen. And I just want to say one other thing about this before we move on. You can't both sides, the legitimacy crisis and the corruption at the Supreme Court, it has 100% been led by the right. But this statement of ethics that Justice Roberts sent over along with a middle finger to the <laughs> Senate Judiciary Committee was signed by all nine justices. Right. Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, Jackson signed this statement. They were under no obligation to do that. They could have not signed it, and that would have sent a pretty big message. They could speak out on their own. There's nothing stopping them. It's bad enough that the courts are packed with conservatives, that they're engaging in this corruption, doing all the things you just said. But if we can't have our own people on board advocating for the court's legitimacy, I simply don't know how we get out of this. You know, I think it's just a continuation of what the court has relied on for many years. They close ranks and don't like to be seen publicly as infighting. There's good reason for that. I'm not going to decry that historically because doing so would politicize like every opinion that comes out. It's just so easy to see it devolving into a, a melee. That said, one of the justices decided now was a good time to do an interview with the Wall Street Journal. Mm. And I'll tell you, the nine justices did not sign off on this interview. Justice Alito gave an unprecedented public interview to the Wall Street Journal this week of all weeks. What a good week to go to a Rupert Murdoch outlet and uh, whine that the Supreme Court is being unfairly attacked by the press and politicians and called on other lawyers to close ranks around the court. Basically said that these quote-unquote crises are, are manufactured by the press and that the popularity of the court that has diminished in public polling is attributable to frenetic reporting that the court is you know corrupt or problematic. Doesn't even address that one of the justices' spouses was involved in January 6th. He addresses the leak of the Dobbs opinion mm. vaguely and says, why would a conservative do it? It put targets on us. He has a pretty good idea of who did it, but doesn't say who. He doesn't blame the overruling of historic precedent that is popular amongst the American people for their decline in popularity. He doesn't blame the rushed Kavanaugh nomination hearings or the appointment of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's successor 38 days after she passed away during an election year, despite the stonewall of Garland during an election year. And he doesn't blame the recent corruption stories. He doesn't even address them. Instead, he just blames the reporting of those facts. What shocked me the most overall is 
that he didn't engage with any substance. It was just straight up whining. Why are we being held accountable? It really gets to the mentality that these people have. It's not that the public's wrong about X, Y, and Z. They're mischaracterizing our opinion. No, it's just, why are you complaining at all? They issue their decree and that's it. Yeah. How aloof do you have to be from the world today to not see the potency of those corruption stories? Elections have been won and lost on those stories. Powerful people have been taken down. It's crazy to me that he would think this is totally unwarranted, totally unfair scrutiny of the court. Yeah, but I do think there's this mentality that that really a lot of justices share. I mean, this is drilled into your head in, in American law schools too, that the law is sort of this thing that exists up there that we have to like discover. And there are these really smart people that wear robes that they like discover the law and apply the law. And it's just like this objective, correct thing. Hmm. And therefore, it doesn't matter if I'm off, you know, hanging out with rich people or whatever, because like, I see the law. My discovery would be the same either way, because it exists intrinsically in the ether. I'm not one of these bad people who has like opinions. Like I I discover the law. That's what we do. Only they have had the special magical education that allows them to reach up into the sky and pull down the real meaning. It's just so self-important and absurd. He's yelling at us for caring about corruption. I mean, are you kidding me, dude? It's wild because I think that they're sitting atop a tinderbox right now and they have a match in their hands and that is student debt. And it seems highly likely that they are going to constrain some aspect of the student debt forgiveness in the next two months. When I am telling you that the American public is going to lose its mind if these justices, as they right. get $500,000 vacations, directly out of their pocket. Yep. Say, no, you can't have $20,000. Sorry. We have a limiting view of executive power this month. Mm-hmm. There were arguments held at the end of February about President Biden's plan to forgive up to $20,000 in student debt. During those oral arguments, conservatives on the court seemed very hostile to the idea that the president could use emergency powers that were granted under COVID relief bills to cancel student debt. There were two cases. Six Republican-led states argued that student debt relief hurt their revenue streams. Separately, a case was brought by two borrowers who had not qualified for the full amount of debt relief. The Biden administration had argued that neither had standing, which if you listen to our last episode, we talked a little bit about standing in abortion cases. Standing is just a legal word, meaning that you have an injury that allows you to bring a lawsuit. You know, if you win on standing, you win everything. If the court holds that they didn't have standing, then it doesn't matter whether the court agreed on the merits with their arguments or not. So it's possible that these get tossed out on standing. But if they don't, the question here is whether student debt cancellation qualifies as a, quote, modification under the language of the HEROES Act, which was one of those COVID relief bills. And Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas expressed a lot of skepticism that canceling such a large amount of debt, even though it's small per borrower, would qualify as a, quote, modification. I don't know what you think, but to me, on the heels of these stories, if they choose to throw out the student debt plan, young voters here are just going to be irate. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit last week with some of the abortion rulings that a lot of what the Supreme Court does is so incremental and people don't see it. But this is an extremely unique case where they're literally by judicial decree going to like take tens of thousands of dollars straight out of young people's pockets at a time when they really need it. 
But if there's a silver lining in it, we've been begging the Democratic Party and Democratic voters to care about the courts for a very, very long time, the way that the right does. This is going to do it. Yeah. This could be a moment for young voters to get organized. If you asked me a month ago, I would have told you that I think they will be careful about this ruling because of these legitimacy issues and these questions about their own corruption. After this week and these errors in judgment, as I see them, this letter and then this disastrous King Alito interview, I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know if they're just in an alternate universe or who's advising them or who they're talking to in their personal lives, but good Lord, it's very possible they're going to issue a scathing ruling on student debt and just invite the wrath of the masses. Well, we will keep an eye on it. And we'll give you all the updates right here at the Bench Press. We'll see you next week.